evening. Hello, welcome. Thank you very much for coming to the Free Word Centre for this uh, wonderful and exciting evening, which is the launch of The Humans by Matt Haig. Um, I'm, I'm especially excited to be here. I'm Matt's editor at Canongate Books. My name's Francis Bitmore. Um, I've worked with Matt on, on several books now, um, and this has been the funnest one yet, um, and I hope there'll be many more to come. Um, I think it was, it was William Burroughs who, who once said, after one look at this planet, any visitor from outer space would say, I want to see the manager. <laughs> I, feel, uh, I feel that Matt has kind of taken that as a as a starting point for an extraordinary novel about, um, about seeing the world through fresh eyes. And, um, and that is really what great novels can do, certainly do for me. So um, uh, this, this book is, uh, yeah, I won't say any more about it, actually. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce our speakers, who are Matt Haig, um, and also Nika Shukler, who works for the Book Trust, but is also a very talented novelist in his own right. Um, his book, Coconut Unlimited, was uh, shortlisted for the... Uh, the Costa First Novel Award, um, and he's a very, very talented man and interesting uh, mind. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing them both speak about uh, this book and about writing in general. So, without further ado, please welcome Mahega Nikeshwara. Hello. Oh. Are we all well? We're live on the internet, by the way. We're, we're trying this as a live stream, so basically, not only can Matt and I see you guys, but we can see ourselves. Um, so we can see what you guys are seeing, essentially. Um, thanks so much uh, to everyone for coming. Um, ju- uh, just a quick word about uh, Book Trust. Uh, we're a reading and writing charity, and uh, we run loads of amazing pro- programs like Bookstart and Book Time and. Letterbox Club, and we manage loads of prizes like the Women's Prize, something time DFG Pirate Bank Short Story Award, and um, we also, uh, because we do loads of things with writing and getting aspiring writers to feel more confident about getting their work finished and sending them out, we run a writer in residency program. And so, uh, our first ever writer in residence was Patrick Ness, who recently had a, a, a book out on Canongate. And uh, we've had Evie Wilde, we've had Polly Dunbar, Hannah Berry, and currently Matt Haig. Um, does everyone read Matt's uh, book trust, weekly book trust, writer in residence book? Anyone got any favourites? Has anyone commented on, has anyone, um, uh, commented on any of them on, on the internet? Has anyone said anything contentious about them? <laughs> Has anyone said any rude things in the comments section? Because we will hunt you down afterwards and have some words with you. Um, but yeah, Matt's residency has been amazing. It's been a real window into uh, what it really means to be a writer. It's not just all the sort of airy fairy walks and thinking. It's you know real real life concerns about getting published, about those moments when you're alone and you've got a blank page. It's, it's a really compelling blog, and we've all really enjoyed it at Book Trust. And it's been really nice to see everyone else. Uh, enjoying it as well. Um, I will stop talking now. Um, Matt, because Matt has a new book out called The Humans. Has anyone got copies of it? Yeah. So, uh, to start, I think Matt is going to read an extract from The Humans. Yeah, okay. I, I never know about which extract to read from a book. And with this one, it's even harder because the tone sort of shifts. So you either go for funny and then have people not laugh, which is awkward. <laughs> Or you go for sort of the more sort of heartfelt stuff later on. So I, I've sort of compromised and gone for the middle, um, which is, for those who haven't read it yet, it's basically an alien comes to Earth and um, 
this was the idea for this book was just um, looking at humans as we would look at another species. So it's sort of like David Attenborough, life on Earth, but we're instead of like I don't know seahorses or. Um, lions, it's humans. So it was that sort of anthropological thing. And um, what I'm going to read is from the middle section when he's sort of changing his mind about the human race. Um, Okay. The chapter is called A Few Seconds of Silence Over Breakfast. You become something else, a different species. That is the easy bit. That is simple molecular rearrangement. Our inner technology can do that without a problem, with the correct commands and model to work from. There are no new ingredients in the universe, and humans, however they may look, are made of roughly the same things we are. The difficulty, though, is the other stuff. The stuff that happens when you look in the bathroom mirror and see this new you, and you don't want to throw up into the sink at the sight of yourself like you have wanted to every other morning. And when you wear clothes and you realise it's starting to feel like quite a normal thing to do. And when you walk downstairs and see the life form that is meant to be your son eating toast, listening to music only he can hear, it takes you a second, or two, three, four seconds, to realise that actually this is not your son. He means nothing to you. Not only that, he has to mean nothing to you. Also, your wife. Your wife is not your wife. Your wife who loves you but doesn't really like you because of something you never did, but which couldn't be any worse, from her perspective, than the something you're going to do. She is an alien. She is as alien as they come. A primate whose nearest evolutionary cousins are hairy tree-dwelling knuckle-draggers known as chimpanzees. And yet, when everything is alien, the alien becomes familiar. And you can judge her as humans judge her. You can watch her when she drinks her pink grapefruit juice and stares at her son with worried, helpless eyes. You can see that for her, being a parent is standing on a shore and watching her child in a vulnerable craft heading out over deeper and deeper water, hoping but not knowing there will be land somewhere ahead. And you can see her beauty. If beauty on earth is the same as elsewhere, ideal in that it is tantalising and unsolvable, creating a delicious kind of confusion. I was confused. I was lost. I wished I had a new wound just so she could attend to me. What are you looking at, she asked me. You, I said. She looked at Gulliver. He couldn't hear us. Then she looked back at me, as confused as myself. Right, that was a chapter, because I've got ADHD, and my chapters are sort of like, (laughs) never go on for more than two pages. So I'm going to read you another chapter, which is just a short, and this is slightly more funny, I suppose. It's, um... Hopefully. Don't say that it's funny, then... no, it's absolutely hilarious. We're going to be on the floor, rolling around. Guys. No, there's one joke in it. I'm pretty sure there's one joke. No, um, it's an alien goes to a football match. Um, but it doesn't start funny, so don't feel pressured. <laughs> the bit where you laugh, you know, it will take you by surprise right at the end. <laughs> okay, life slash death slash football. Humans are one of the few intelligent beings in the galaxy who haven't quite solved the problem of death. And yet they don't spend their whole lives screeching and howling in terror, clawing at their own bodies or rolling around on the floor. Some humans do that. I saw them in the hospital. But those humans are considered the mad ones. 
Now, consider this. A human life is on average 80 Earth years, or around 30,000 Earth days, which means they're born, they make some friends, eat a few meals, they get married, or they don't get married, have a child or two or not, drink a few thousand glasses of wine, have sexual intercourse a few times, discover a lump somewhere, feel a bit of regret, wonder where all the time went, know they should have done it differently, realise they'd have probably done it the same, <laughs> and then they died <coughs> into the great black nothing out of space, out of time the most trivial of trivial zeros and that's it, the full caboodle all confined to the same mediocre planet but at ground level the humans don't appear to spend their entire lives in a catatonic state no, they do other things things like washing Listening, gardening, eating, driving, working, yearning, earning, staring, drinking, sighing, reading, gaming, sunbathing, complaining, jogging, quibbling, caring, mingling, fantasising, googling, parenting, <laughs> renovating, loving, dancing, fucking, regretting, failing, striving, hoping, sleeping. Oh, and sport. <laughs> Apparently I, or rather Andrew, liked sport. And the sport he liked was football. Luckily for Professor Andrew Martin, the football team he supported was Cambridge United, one of those which successfully avoided the perils and existential trauma of victory. <laughs> to support Cambridge United, I discovered, was to support the idea of failure. <laughs> to, to watch a team's feet consistently avoid the spherical earth symbol seemed to frustrate their supporters greatly, but they obviously wouldn't have it any other way. The truth is, you see, however much they would beg to disagree, humans don't actually like to win. Or rather, they like winning for 10 seconds, but if they keep on winning, they end up actually having to think about other things, like life and death. <laughs> the only things humans like less than winning is losing, but at least something can be done about that. With absolute winning, there's nothing to be done. They just have to deal with it. Okay? <laughs> So normally we wouldn't sit this close. No, no, it's <laughs> quite close. Like, 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 like we're on a bus journey going somewhere and we're just having a chat. Um, so the humans, uh, I read it, and which is quite important when you're talking to someone about the book, but um, it seemed to me like um, a really warm and funny, um, I can tell my notes, uh, an uncynical take on humanity that seemed like it was written as a sort of antidote to very highbrow, very serious literary fiction. So I just wondered what was the starting point for you when you were when you sat down to write it? Yeah, well I mean I, I think for me, like I feel so much sort of like anxiety of influence, so much sort of you know, there's so many books that feel like books. You know, there's so many, you know, books, I don't know, it's quite an intimidating thing. I don't know, I wasn't that great at school, so books to me are, are quite an intimidating symbol of things that you can be shut out from. So I, I try not to think about the word book and think about the word story and just think about telling a story around the campfire and just sort of trying to include as many people as possible. And I think my, my big gripe that I just bang on about all the time and in those butchers blogs so I, is the fact that um, I essentially believe there is a sort of class system of books which isn't a class system necessarily on merit, but it's on things like genre, it's on things like um, thriller versus literary fiction and literary fiction being quite, you know, being a genre to itself but a genre that doesn't admit it's a genre and I just like to just, you know, forget all that and just think, 
you know, try and write as if no one's ever written a book before and just try and write something that just feels like a story that's not sort of dumbing down or making itself higher brow than it needs to be. That's just a story. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it felt like it was very, almost on purpose, outside of genre because there are elements of comedy and thriller and drama. You know, there's a very nice family story in it. There's a love story in it. Um, and it's sort of it's talking about the big things without sort of bashing you over the head with overall emotion. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the idea for it came came from quite a dark place. I was ill about twelve years ago. I had a bit, had a breakdown. I suffered depression, panic attacks, and I honestly felt like I was an alien. Either I was an alien, or the rest of the species were aliens. I, I just think that most people spend their lives sort of worrying about the car keys, worrying about all these trivial things, worrying about football teams, worrying about that. And I, I sometimes feel, and I certainly felt like when I was in a depressive state, I felt like you know, there's these, this massive sort of wonder and terror in the world that people, it, for whatever reason, deliberately choose not to um, look at. So this was my book to say, hey, look at it, don't be scared of looking at it. Well, you know, on one hand, you've, you've sort of fictionalised what you were going through, but on the other hand, uh, with some of the blogs that you wrote at the Book Trust, you yeah. talked very openly about um, struggling with depression. W- w- was that more difficult to write than write, writing the book and sort of distancing yourself away from it? No, it was, it was really quite easy, because, you know, for a start, you're writing blogs on your own, in a room, and also being a writer, it's quite, it's almost the thing to be, you know, you've got such a, so many people have famously been depressives who are writers, I think if I was like an accountant, or if I was, you know, it was, it would be more of a stigma, and you know, you you essentially work for yourself, so I, I, I didn't, I don't really, people say you're brave for doing it, but I wasn't really brave for doing it. I, I sort of really wanted, I, I sort of felt for years that I, I, I wanted to talk, talk um, about it and I was lucky that I, I could talk to, to family about it. But yeah, I think depression is one of those things that the actual stigma of depression, capital D depression, a bit like how cancer used to be embarrassing 50 years ago, I think that it, um, makes people who suffer, suffer more. Mm-hmm. And, and because it's a, a mind-related illness, those sort of negative thoughts make you more ill. So it's good to just get it out. And uh, do, you, do, you think, um, do you think it's helped any other writers out there who write because they're sort of perhaps going through similar dark times? Well, I hope so. I, you know, you never know. I, I, I was surprised at the, you know, that blog in particular had such a big big response and it had some serious typos in it within 500 words which you, you should have really spotted but it was my fault for, for um, <laughs> Sylvia Path <laughs> you know I thought it was a really good part about you know, the journey that you were going through um, so um, let's talk a little bit about your residency because um, you really lifted the lift the lid on a writer's life, you know, the neuroses, the binge eating, the bad dancing. Um, and what's the experience been like for you? It's been good, but it's weird now. I, I, I'm just hoping I'm sort of like took a lot of cold and flu medicine at the start of the day and I'm just in front of my Facebook page and it's sort of coming out of me because like, you write these sort of blogs very, and you write generally, being a writer is a very you know, it's a very private thing. And to get the confidence, you need to forget that anyone is looking at you or anyone is going to read it. Even with the blogs, I just forget, you know, 
otherwise you would write it in a different way. But it, it must be hard to forget because you get an insane amount of retweets and favourites on those blogs. You know, they're they're, very, they're really popular. You get like, uh, you get sort of a re instant reaction to, to them. And, yeah, but it's, it's Twitter. It's not real. It's not. Real. <laughs> <laughs> hey, most of us are here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm, I know. I've got writer's block now. I'm not going to be able to. Is, is there anything that you've said that you've either changed your mind about or you've since regretted saying? Well, the thing is, I, I'm like I come across quite opinionated in some of these things, but my opinions change every single day. I could not be I, I could not be a politician, you know, because you have to stand. I, no, I just I think it's wrong that we have to have these leaders of our country that where we hold them to account for changing their minds, and they have to play this game of staying firm to things they thought about five five years ago. I don't have an opinion about how for five minutes, really. You know, I, 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 I constantly believe that um, um, personalities change. Not fundamentally change, but opinions on things like book snobbery, that is something that's um, constantly changing in my own mind. And also, sometimes those blogs were just me sort of arguing to myself. Mm. Like, to me as a book snob, saying, don't be so snobby. But, you know... But, but I guess often writers write because they're trying to work their way through a problem. So, yeah. uh, and I guess with a blog, because it is so instant, you're bound to sort of be faced with counter-arguments quite quickly, as opposed to if you wrote a novel and then, say, two, three years down the line it comes out. Yeah, and that, yeah. I, I, as it's gone on, I find that more difficult. But even, I, I, I mean, with novels, I'm so sort of precious with the novel. I'll only show Andrea, my wife, and I won't show anyone else because unless like if I've got 30,000 words written of a novel and I show someone and they don't like faint with awe and just sort of say <laughs> Jesus I've read books before my god what is this <laughs> unless they you know start having some physical response at how great it is it, I'll say well I had, I had to be airlifted out so another thing you've, t- you've talked about um, things like what authors think of critics genres but you've also been oh, actually no we've talked about that never mind um, so the humans for me was like a socio-economic state of the nation almost um, there, there, there's, there's loads of stuff about um, you know the way we relate to each other now with all these sort of digital technologies and what you think about football um, and I, I just wondered if you know things things like um, having you know having such a big following on Twitter and Facebook and sort of being, being internet famous um, how how that has enhanced the author experience for you? Um, well, the thing is, when you're on Twitter, you're not writing a novel, so it, it, it's sort of a um, I don't know. I'm someone who I, I take sort of like promotion and stuff seriously. I think it's part of the same thing. Writers, and I, I believe them when they say it, but writers, I don't really understand writers who say they write for themselves because writing and certainly being published is a public act. Mm. So there's an element of always being, with me, conscious of people listening to the story that you're telling. So um, the internet, for me, is just an extension of that. And I, I, I don't, you know, I test out title ideas. I tested out the humans and stuff on Twitter. I think it's getting more interactive and more of a conversation and more to what, you know, people talk about books being something permanent and forever in that form, but books 
really, if you look at human existence, books have only been with us since yesterday, you know, en masse, you know, printing press, industrial revolution, and then 100 years after that, more and more people started to read books. But, you know, it's a tiny length of time. But stories have been with us forever, and they've been around in different, different forms and different ways. And um, so I think it's getting back to a more sort of conversational, interactive um, type of storytelling and more inclusive type. And I think that's, that's a good thing. I mean, there are problems, obviously, for the book and the business side of things in the future. But I think creatively, I think it's all good. And uh, w- w- what do you get out of um, the interactions yourself as a writer? Does, does it affect how you <coughs> approach the fiction? You know, it, or are you... St- still quite set in how you want to tell a story? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Writing is hell most of the time. It's Like, uh, like Nam was. Like Nam. It's my, my Nam. Actually, <laughs> Ibiza was my Nam, but that's, that's, a, that, that's a different story. Uh, um, what was the question? Yeah, but you know, I, I think yeah, Veterans Day is a good thing. So, <laughs> um, so you, you've you've had quite a few books out now, and I wondered if having written the human, humans is. Sorry, no, I'm can't read my handwriting. I can't read your handwriting. I'm just baffled. It's some sort of code. Um, I've written it all in Gujarati. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so is is. Is there, a, is there something you know now about writing that you would go back and tell the first debut novelist, Matt Hay? I'm so embarrassed about my first book. My first book is... is Why? Because I do so many things in it that I thought were really cool to do. <laughs> I, I thought I was making a big statement. On the first page, I have a quote from William Shakespeare and then David Beckham at the same time. <laughs> high, high and low, makes it all good. And I just... I don't know, I just cringe all the way through. But at its heart, obviously it's a masterpiece. But... Yeah. I, I, I fell over with all yeah. But, uh, but uh, Yeah, what would I say? <laughs> um, don't worry, you've written a masterpiece. I'd say, yeah, stop trying to be cool. I'd say, um, I'd say just stop worrying and just concentrate on the thing you're writing. I'd say um, be persistent and be thick-skinned and try not to take things personally. And um, change publisher. <laughs> <laughs> um, you do know this is being live streamed. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm fine. John for Kate, it's fine. <laughs> so, um, this isn't a spoiler, but uh, in The Humans you've got lyrics by Talking Heads and you've got various pop culture references in that mode. What, what were some of the things that were influencing you, influencing you when you were writing it? You know, books, music, films, food? Yeah, I mean, this is another thing about um, the snobbery thing. I think, you know, how can a book only... How can a writer only be influenced by other books unless you're literally doing nothing all day apart from reading books? If you're sort of opening your eyes to life, you're taking in, I don't know, Maybelline adverts, you know, bits of TV shows, you're taking in... Um, you know anything you see on the side of the bus, you're taking in everything. So and I just think being the father of small children, being the father of small children, seeing babies as well. Yeah, and hallucinations coming from sleep deprivation, sleeping on carpets. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it comes from everywhere, but it's very hard to sort of locate. Um, I mean, obviously, with this, there's some sort of obvious things. It's a sort of mix of 
um, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, those sort of early sort of J.G. Ballard, um, those sort of classic mid-century science fiction writers, plus quite sort of cheesy, feel-good 80s um, sci-fi stuff as well from E.T. Um, onwards. And, uh, you know, even a bit of fish-out-of-water comedy, like Splash, is in there. <laughs> yeah, my Merman book is going to be... <laughs> Um, and just finally from me, because I, I, I hope there's loads of questions here from the audience, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay, so um, in your first blog for Book Trust, you said for books to survive, they need to be more than just status symbols. What do books need to be, Matt Haig? Um, they need to be not books. They need to be stories and just including people and not bogged down with um, what you see necessarily in a bookshop where you've got the categories and things divided up like on Amazon into different slices of pie. You need to sort of just imagine the fire and people sitting around listening and um, taking things from wherever you want to take them and just writing... Um, what feels most right and I, I, with me the humans, it's rare for me like the Radleys, the book before, I'm quite proud of but when I was writing it I didn't like have that slightly sort of dangerous feeling in my stomach so I, I think as a writer I always feel like I'm onto something a little bit, if it, it feels slightly wrong or naughty or a bit not playing the game there's a little bit of, because what one of the books I did um, with my First publisher, um, well, I'll say it, The Possession of Mr. Cave. It, I, I was quite proud of it, and I still am quite proud of it, but I, I definitely feel I was writing it consciously as a writer mm. and um, trying to be a certain type of literary writer. And I, all my insecurities about that in my 20s, sort of trying, thinking, oh, this is how a writer should be. So I think writing and books, it, it's best to just forget everything and try and come up with your new own language. Like you've done in your notes. Uh, that's not my notes. That's a draft. That's quite well established. Um, do you have another extract for us? Yeah, I thought. Um, okay, so um, Matt's going to do another extract from the book, and then we'll throw to you guys and to the internet for questions. Well, I thought, as there is some free wine, I'd do a bit about wine, <laughs> and it's a very short chapter called Australian Wine. I've forgotten to take my tablets today. Isabel smiled. Well, one, e- one evening off went her. Do you want a glass of wine? I hadn't tried wine before, so I said yes, as it really did seem to be a very revered substance. It was a mild night, so Isabel poured me a glass and we sat outside in the garden. Newton, the dog, decided to stay indoors. I looked at the transparent yellow liquid in the glass. I tasted it and tasted fermentation. In other words, I tasted life on earth. For everything that lives here ferments, ages, becomes diseased. But as things made their decline from ripeness, they could taste wonderful, I realised. Then I considered the glass. The glass had been distilled from rock and so it knew things. It knew the age of the universe because it was the universe. I took another sip. After the third sip, I was really beginning to see the point, and it did something rather pleasant to the brain. I was forgetting the dull aches of my body and the sharp worries of my mind. 
By the end of the third glass, I was very, very drunk. I was so drunk, I looked to the sky and believed I could see two moons. You do realise you're drinking Australian wine, don't you? She said. To which I may have replied, Oh, you hate Australian wine. Do I? Why? I said. Because you're a snob. (laughs) What's a snob? She laughed, looked at me sideways. Someone who didn't used to sit down with his family to watch TV, she said, ever. Oh, I drank some more, so did she. Maybe I I am becoming less of one, I said. Anything is possible. She smiled. She was still exotic to me, that was obvious, but it was a pleasant exoticism now, beyond pleasant, in fact. Actually, anything is possible, I told her, but didn't go into the maths. She put her arm around me. I did not know the etiquette. Was this the moment I was meant to recite poetry written by dead people? Or was I meant to massage her anatomy? (laughs) I did nothing. I just let her stroke my back as I stared upwards, beyond the thermosphere, and watched the two moons slide together and become one. 